Hello, and welcome to Ever Widening Circles, the podcast designed to give you more joy, less fear, and no end to the evidence that a brighter future is possible. This podcast will give you a fresh perspective on the world around you. We want you to hear from thought leaders in a wave of progress well underway around the globe that almost no one knows about. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we've been restoring people's hope in the future by writing thousands of articles about insight and innovation going uncelebrated in our world. And along the way, we've been having incredible conversations with thought leaders that we're now sharing with the world. Today, I'm going to chat with James Nestor, author, journalist. He's written for Outside Magazine, The Atlantic, National Public Radio, The New York Times, and so many more. And we're going to be specifically talking about his new book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. It's a number one bestseller for good reason. I mean, it is quintessentially about something so foundational in our nature. You know, my husband and I both read this book, and uh, that's about all I want to go into right now. James, I really love to have people kind of introduce themselves, because you're going to give people a lot more information about the landscape of how we came to be talking here. So welcome, James Nestor. Thanks a lot for having me. So, James, tell us, uh, well, I'll just fill people in on, James and I have been friends for quite some time. We wrote an article about James almost two years ago, maybe longer, James, about a previous book he wrote called Deep. And that's a book. If you're into natural history at all, (laughs) I literally fell over a cliff with you. And I put that book on at the beginning of a 17-hour drive back to Illinois from Vermont. And it was as if you were sitting beside me the entire time. So when I found out James wrote another book about something as foundational and, and even more fascinating, here we are. So James, give us the landscape that you're going to just give us an overview of where you're going to take us. Cause I know you're going to take us on a little journey today. <laughs> well, it depends on where you want to go, but uh, we can go on, on various journeys I think that focusing on this, um, I would say, underappreciated and until recently under-researched biological function of breathing, at least here in the Western world, it's been under-researched, is a good place to, to go and to think about and um, to start to explore because it's something that each of us can can really access within ourselves and, and feel the difference of breathing in different ways and see what it does to our minds and our bodies. Yeah, that is really something that was a through line through the whole entire book is what it does to our bodies and our minds. I, I want you to know, I think about you um, often now in the strangest times when I can't fall asleep. I do the breathing only through my nose thing. <laughs> I have a, a few thoughts that I kind of focus on. And now I, I, I never toss and turn for hours. There's probably some physiology to that as much as the the mental part of it. But let's go way, way back. Like you wrote this book because you were on a personal journey with some breathing issues of your own. So, and a lot of people who are listening to this podcast will identify with that part of your story. So take us all the way back to how this ever started. Well, it wasn't one specific jumping off point for me. It was many things had been accumulating over several years. So I live here in San Francisco and I surf a lot and I exercise a lot. And 
I thought I was eating the right foods and sleeping the right amount of hours every night, but I kept getting sick. And so I had constant respiratory issues. I was getting mild pneumonia year in and year out and bronchitis. And, you know, a lot of people said, oh, this is just what, what happens. It's, it's normal. Everyone's having these problems. And I, I thought otherwise. So I went to a doctor and she mentioned that a breathing class could help. And so I found a breathing class, which is not a hard thing to do here in San Francisco. There's different kinds of breathing classes and techniques available on every street corner. So I found one, picked one at random and had a really weird experience in it um, that no one could really explain. I, I got extremely sweaty. I mean, so much so that I sweat through my T-shirt and my hair was sopping wet uh, just by sitting in the corner of this room for 10 minutes and breathing in this rhythmic pattern. The the breathing class lasted about an hour, but all the sweating started happen happening um, just after about 10 minutes. So my doctor didn't know what the hell happened. She she said, oh, the room was too hot or I had a fever. Just, you know, a bunch of garbage. She had, she had no idea. But it was really until I saw free divers that I, I realized there was something really powerful here. These are people who can hold their breath for seven, eight, nine minutes at a time and dive to depths of 300, 400 feet. And I thought, wow, if we could do all that in the water. What can we do on land with breathing? Mm, that is so true. And that is a great part of the beginning of the, the book that, that I previously recommended called Deep that James has written. So James, I have to tell you, <laughs> I'll just be honest, I'm pretty transparent on these interviews. I always thought that sort of like the Eastern mentality about breathing and yoga, I, I do yoga, so it's not that I had any real bad preconceived notions idea, but I always thought that was sort of in the spirituality zone, this focus on breathing. Tell me more about this, the, the, what you learned about the Tibetan and versus Western science knowledge about breathing? Well, breathing has been in the spiritual realm for thousands and thousands of years. The word breath in various languages is synonymous with spirit. Mm -hmm. So when we're breathing, we're breathing in our spirit. You know, we're nourishing our bodies. But breathing is also identified with, of course, this biological function. It is the essence of life. So it's been interesting spending years looking at the history of breathing, looking at how it's been interpreted in the same ways throughout all of these different cultures, and then looking at how Westerners have viewed breathing, which is not really at all, <laughs> not, not spiritually, not as a medicine, not as a therapy, not as a practice. In the Western world, it's, are you breathing? Good, you're alive. Are you not breathing? That's bad you're either unconscious or you're dead. But, you know, breathing is not a binary thing. It's how we do it that's so important. And that's something that I think has really been missing from the larger conversation of around health. Yeah, you know that I've, I've been a dentist for 30 years. And to my experience, about the only things that we're doing in a big way in society is talking about sleep apnea. <laughs> Well, sleep apnea is a big deal. I mean, it's yeah. it's just destroying people. But so is snoring. Yeah, let's know? let's talk about both. Go, uh, give us a lot of background on that because this this will resonate with lots of people. 
Well, something like 20% of the U.S. population has sleep apnea, has been diagnosed with sleep apnea. It's probably a lot more than that, by the way. But about 50% of us uh, snore on occasion and, uh, you know, fewer, smaller percent are, are snoring constantly. And we view snoring as this sort of cute thing. You see videos on YouTube of, of infant snoring or people say, oh, I have to sleep in another room. My spouse snores so loud. There's nothing normal about this. This is you spending a third of your life struggling to breathe. And we've known for 50 years very clearly that if you're struggling for a third of your life to do anything, it's going to have downstream effects. So it's no coincidence that sleep apnea has been directly linked to Alzheimer's, to ADHD, to other neurological issues, to metabolic problems like diabetes. This is no no mystery, right? But fewer people are looking at the role of snoring can be injurious as well, sometimes just as injurious as mild or moderate sleep apnea. And not even that, they found in Stanford, Christian uh, Gimeno, who was down at Stanford, one of the fathers of sleep medicine, he studied this stuff for 50 years, he found that any resistance in the airway is bad news. It's going to stress you out and it's going to make you more apt to have health issues further down the line. So when you start looking at all of the data, look at how many people have asthma, about 10% of the population. How many have sleep apnea? How many uh, suffer from chronic hyperventilation? How many have COPD? I mean, the majority of the population has forgotten how to breathe properly. And that's one of the reasons why we're suffering so many chronic issues. It's so huge. Okay. So we can go one of two ways. I think first you ought to explain what you learned in your research about de-evolution. <laughs> so I had always learned that evolution was this straight line forward of progress, right? Uh, survival of the fittest, Darwinism. We're getting bigger and stronger and more badass every year. Totally wrong. Evolution <laughs> means, means change. If that were true, then we'd all be eight feet tall and wouldn't have all of these chronic health issues. Instead, take a look around. Look at the average BMI now compared to 1960. <laughs> and and you'll just see that we are not getting better. We are, in many ways, getting more and more sick. So we have these amazing medicines in Western medicine, lifesavers for people, so people are staying alive for a pretty long time, but that doesn't mean they're healthy during that time. So there's, there's a very huge difference between those, those two things. So, you know, I think that acknowledging these problems exist, specifically acknowledging that our airways have gotten so much smaller just in the past 200, 300 years, so much so that our mouths are so small that our teeth no longer fit. They grow in crooked. And most people know this because most people have had crooked teeth um, and gotten braces just like me and just like everyone else I knew. But if you look at an ancient skull, they're going to have perfectly straight teeth. They're going to have this broad face, this very powerful jaw. So it's only in the past few centuries that humans have come down with these, these chronic changes, which have really affected our health by way of affecting our breathing. Well, you know... I, being a dentist, I see exactly the kind of <laughs> long face, 
high vaulted. If people get curious about what we're talking about, just for this little section of the podcast, if you tip back your head and look in the mirror and you see a really, really high vaulted arch in the roof of your mouth, I see that all the time in young kids. I, this, this really resonated with me in several parts of your book. And I've been for 25 years telling patients that their their parents that they need to take the kid to be evaluated for adenoids because mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's your what's your take after all you learned. I've always been telling people that form follows function. That if you don't use your nose, that palate stays way high. You're probably not using your nose because your adenoids are giant, huge, and then you get the long face and all the things that you describe in the book about children that are developing in this way. Talk to me more about what you know about all that, because I could be totally wrong. I think that those things go both ways. So form follows function and function follows form. So if you have uh, really poor functioning airways, you can't breathe right, your face is going to look different. Okay. You're going to be a mouth breather throughout your youth and it's going to change your skeleticure and your musculature in your face. And you are going to develop a different kind of face. And so this is so well, well known. There's a term for it. It's called adenoid face. When your adenoids get inflamed, when your tonsils get inflamed, you can't breathe through your nose. You become an obligate mouth breather. So there's no mystery behind this stuff. Uh, People are saying, what? This can't be real. This is your hypothesis. Just look at the scientific literature. Look at the people who study. Talk to dentists about this. <laughs> you know, it's it's no mystery. The majority of us have a high arch palate right now, have a V-shaped palate. I look in the mirror, I see it every day. And it's no mystery that our ancestors did not. I've looked at hundreds of skulls and none of them have had this high arch palate. So this is something we've done to ourselves. And with this smaller mouth, smaller airway, more trouble breathing, chronic health issues. Just one equals the other equals the other. There's no way of getting around that. So how have we done this to ourselves? Like when is that timeline that you, you that we would see this in, in human skulls? And yeah, so what seems to have gone awry in this whole system? Well, what's so fascinating, what became so fascinating for me is it happened in basically the blink of an eye. It happened so quickly in a single generation our mouths started getting smaller, our teeth started growing crooked. And what happened, without blowing the whole story here, is industrial foods came online. So these foods are garbage. They've always been garbage. Yeah, they fed a lot of people, and that's good. And they have a longer shelf life, and that's good. And they were easy to ship, and that's good. And they made food cheaper for people. All good things. But they robbed us of chewing stress and they robbed us of essential vitamins and minerals. And so all it takes is one generation of eating this stuff and mouths grow crooked. This was studied by Weston Price. It was studied by Robert Corcini. It was studied by Daniel Lieberman at Harvard. So again, there's a foundation of science showing this, but still you can go to the National Institutes of Health website And look up the causes of malocclusion, something I did, and they said it's hereditary, which explains zero. (laughs) If our ancestors 200 years ago had perfectly straight teeth and wide mouths, why do we have small mouths and crooked teeth? Sorry, that reasoning just doesn't work for me. And that's what really set me off on this path to 
try to understand what happened, but not just to dwell on the negative. I realize we've been doing that here for a few minutes, and that's the no-no to the show. But the point is to recognize these problems so that we know how to better fix them. Yeah, and I want to point out that that we are going to take that hard right turn right now. But I just want to take a moment to point out that James is an amazing writer because of the wide swath of experience that he's had in life, just life in general, which I hope to talk about some of the outliers in that. You know, there's this great, great little passage here that I marked. You say, <laughs> and you're talking about how humans emerged from Africa way back when and homo, and how the Homo sapiens met the Neanderthals and stuff like that. And you say, what a sight it might have been. These ragtag species all gathered around a blazing campfire at night, a Star Wars cantina of early humanity, sipping river water, from palm cups, picking grubs from each other's hair, comparing the ridges of their brows, and scampering off behind a boulder to have interspecies sex in the glow of starlight. This is the way this book goes. So we're, we're talking about a serious subject that could seem sort of dry, like breath, but this whole book... <laughs> You are taking us on such a lovely journey. I circled that whole paragraph in about dozens more. My my editor tried to cut that line. She thought it was way too weirdo, but it's all based on things we know. Uh, and this was something that I thought was crazy, too. There were so many different human species living together at one time. And it wasn't that long ago, you know, 50,000 yeah. years ago, 60,000 years ago. You could be hanging out with a Neanderthal, a Denisovan, maybe even uh, an offshoot of an Erectus. I mean, and and what a wild world to have different species of humans walking around. And that was an image that just popped up to me when I was reviewing all this with at in the Smithsonian database. And I thought, oh, my God. And and we still carry around Denisovan and, and Neanderthal DNA in our bodies. So. It's all stuff that happened. And what was amazing is all those species breathed perfectly well. They had these amazingly wide mouths and straight teeth and wide nasal apertures. And so it's we are really the only species, I, I would say the only iteration of humans to be suffering from these chronic problems, which, wow, what a trip that is. Okay. So let's go on. Let's go to the solutions part. But first, give us a little physiology lesson. Just remind us of how it starts, top to bottom, mm -hmm. because, you know, we, we are a generation of folks who may or may not have gotten that real deep kind of human physiology science. So take us from the top to bottom. We breathe in and sometimes we have, for instance, you mentioned in that same section that Neanderthals might have had long noses because they lived in cold climates. And so the air needed to be heated up when they breathe. So give us like a top to bottom physiology lesson, just to make sure we know where we're going with this. Well, humans all share the same DNA sequence, but we all look vastly different from one another. And we began to look different from one another when we started going to different environments and eating different foods. So people in the North and very areas that were very cold 
developed larger noses so that they could heat that air up before it went into their lungs. And people in southern climates or near the equator, where there was very warm and moist air, developed larger nostrils and flatter noses because they didn't need that long nose. So this is just how it works. So if we're talking about how breathing works, you know, here's a little biology 101, but Mm -hmm. in a single breath of air, if you just take a breath in, there are more molecules in that breath of air than there are all the sand grains on all the world's beaches. So when we take this breath in, it enters into our lungs and it goes from air from a dry world into a wet world. Uh, So it transfuses into our bloodstreams. So and once it gets into our bloodstreams, it goes into these red blood cells and then it offloads. And an analogy I use is like a cruise ship. You can think of these red blood cells like cruise ships and they go where oxygen is needed. So uh, what happens is they need to know where to offload that oxygen. So they look for places that have carbon dioxide. And it's as passengers get off, other passengers, CO2 gets on. And this goes on, you know, every single day of our lives. We take about 20,000 breaths, 25,000 breaths every day. And this whole dance is happening within us every second of every moment of every day. And we don't realize it or appreciate it. But if you really start thinking about it, what a wondrous thing, (laughs) you know, and what a wondrous thing to hone so that you can function more efficiently. So you, you actually went, if I remember right, you and a, and a colleague actually went two weeks restricting the, the way you, you just literally had a clothespin on your nose or give us that little physiology lesson about you learned, I think it was two weeks, and then you went the other way and you only breathed through your mouth. Talk about that, that part of the experiment, because you, you're not just whistling Dixie. You actually dove into this wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah, I never intended to do this stuff. I was not going to be a part of this book in any way whatsoever, because I really get annoyed when I'm reading nonfiction and the author keeps inserting himself or herself. And I'm just like, go away, tell me the story. But uh, there were a few instances where I had to, I wanted to handhold the reader and say, hey, I don't know anything about this. Okay. But as a journalist, I'm going to go out in the field. I'm going to talk to the experts. I'm going to figure out this story. So come along with me and let's figure this out together. We can both learn about our bodies. So I'm lucky enough to live close to Stanford. I'm in San Francisco. So Stanford's about a half an hour, 40 minutes away. And I got to be pretty good friends with Dr. Jayakar Nayak, who is the chief of rhinology research at Stanford and big nose guy. He's the one who told me all about the wondrous things the nose does and nasal breathing does and all the bad things that mouth breathing does. And so again, not a lot of controversy, but I asked him, I said, well, how soon do these problems associated with mouth breathing come on? How soon do the neurological issues or metabolic issues? And he had no idea. He didn't know if it was two years or two decades or whatever. So I said, well, why don't we test it? And he thought doing so would be unethical because he knew the damage that it would cause to the body and brain. But I volunteered. I said, well, why don't we do an experiment and I'll try to get one other person. And he said, okay. So he gave up his lab for us to to do this experiment. 
at Stanford, which was pretty cool. And we spent 10 days, me and Anders Olsen, who's a breathing therapist in Sweden, 10 days with silicon up our noses. I know this seems like some supersize me stunt, but if you think about the amount of people who are mouth breathing anyway, 25, yeah. 50% of the population, we're just really lulling ourselves into a position that so many people know the differences we measured it. So it was 10 days of mouth breathing followed by 10 days of nasal breathing. Then we would compare data sets and see if anything would happen. So that was the, the outlay of the experiment. And you found the most extraordinary things. Well, to people in this field, to them, it wasn't extraordinary. They're like, of course, this is what happened because mouth breathing is terrible. But it's a whole different thing to experience this firsthand. And that's what I try to do as a journalist. Like, if I'm going to write about this stuff, I need to understand it. And I want to really feel it. I want to inhabit those worlds and be able to come back and and construe this information to people. So, yeah, it was awful. My blood pressure went through the roof. I started snoring, got sleep apnea. Anders got even worse than me. So it completely destroyed us. I mean, we went from not snoring at all to snoring four hours throughout the night. We ended up getting sleep apnea. We had fatigue. We had anxiety. Again, blood pressure issues. Like It was awful. And to think that so much of the population is contending with this right now, and to think that these people aren't being told that this is not normal, it's not good for your health, and if you stop mouth breathing, you can really gain so many benefits. I just thought that that was bizarre because I grew up breathing through my mouth. You know, even in adulthood, I would breathe through my mouth all the time while working out or whatever. I didn't think that there was a problem with it. There is. That is really sort of quintessential. I, I remember I'm probably by about page 20. I was walking around with a little piece of tape, uh, mm-hmm. athletic tape between my lips to make, 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 make me stop doing this. It was it was really something. You you provide some evidence in this book that explains a lot about some of the chronic illnesses that people suffer. It's really something. Well, the benefit that I have as a journalist, as someone who writes about science, is I have no skin in a, either either game, right? So there's new age stuff, there's uh, hardcore yeah. Western scientific stuff. I don't care. I'm just looking at data and I'm talking to the people who've studied these things for 30, 40, even 50 years. So I just wanted to come out with what science really said about this stuff. And I was totally shocked of what really checks out. And I've been even more shocked to be lucky enough to speak at Stanford Medical School and other medical schools who are like, yeah, of course, this is how it works. Why isn't anyone talking about this? And so, you know, it, it's been nice to see, I guess I could, the word is nice, but to see other people as equally frustrated that no one has been really discussing these things for, for so long, even though the, the data, again, is just so clear. Is it purely, okay, so you discovered that you had some physiology to overcome. Is, is it for most people a physiology thing or is it most for most people a habit? Or is it you can't even make generalizations like that? That's a great question. It really depends. We know that 90% of the population has some sort of malocclusion or deformity or, or shrinking of their mouths or jaws. And just look at the incidences of crooked teeth, right? And, and you can see that very, very clearly. And so 
we know that these changes have affected the vast majority of us. So it is a physical, it's an anatomical problem. But just because it's an anatomical problem doesn't mean we can't fix it. Of course we can. For other people who have great airways, who have proper facial growth, who develop better, they can still suffer from breathing dysfunction because of other environmental inputs, um, pollution, mm-hmm. anxiety, right. poor posture. All of mm-hmm. these things affect your ability to breathe. Okay. So I want to get real practical mm-hmm. with the rest of this this conversation. So, <laughs> of course, every day we're walking around since, let's see, when does this book publish? Uh, May 26th. Okay. So it was already well-written, in the wrapper, <laughs> done by the time... We all started having masks in our lives. Well, it's funny. I will just say a little sidebar to that. Like some people wrote when the book came out, they're like, oh, real opportunist to put a book about breathing. This book was done a year before anyone heard the word COVID, people. That is how publishing works. It was locked up in August. So, you know, with the cover art. So, so, right. yeah, it was a complete and utter coincidence. Okay, because there are some fundamentals here that you need to set us right on, okay? Yes. So, we're walking around. So, being a dentist, we wear masks. You know, this was not a hard transition for us. I wear a mask nine hours a day, every day, for 25 years. And But what I notice out in the world is that right from the beginning, and they still are, people are struggling with this mask thing. And if you... See people walking around with their mask down under their nose. <laughs> that kind of defeats the whole purpose. And when I ask people about it, I never I never correct people or anything. <laughs> I'm just not like that. But when I say, oh, you're wearing your nose just under your nose, are you struggling to feel like you're getting a good breath? And people will go on and on because of the carbon dioxide. Most people are operating with this, t- at least telling themselves a story about how masks, they're breathing their own carbon dioxide and they're not getting enough oxygen. So that's why they feel like constantly pulling their their um, mask down. So <laughs> I know that none of that works out scientifically. Tell us all how it is. It always amazes me of how much energy and time people take to explain things without bothering to look for 45 seconds at the science of what's actually going on. <laughs> and The mask thing is a perfect example. There's several studies showing there's no oxygen deprivation going on here. And if you are a conspiracy theorist and you don't believe them, you can buy a pulse oximeter, which is about $15 to $20. You can put it on your finger. You can put your mask on and you can see if you're getting enough oxygen. So there are many different kinds of masks. There are very porous masks and and five-ply masks and all that. But from what I've seen from various studies is it is zero problem getting oxygen. Okay. And again, I have a pulse, two different pulse oximeters here. I've tried five different masks. My O2 sats are exactly the same, no matter what I'm wearing. What people are responding to is a slight increase of carbon dioxide. And I say slight because it is, I'm not even sure if it would really come out if if we did blood gases of these people. So, so many people are so sensitized to carbon dioxide that any of the slightest increase, it puts them into a panic attack because 
what panic and anxiety are associated with, as with asthma, is this fear of holding your breath. Because holding your breath is mostly linked to an attack when you can't breathe. So we become so sensitized that we are overbreathers. <laughs> you hear people breathing like that all the time. So this mask thing, I think, and don't quote me on this, this is a hypo- not even a hypothesis, a thought experiment, is that this mask thing could actually be helping people breathe more slowly, to be focusing on their breath, and to get their CO2 back in balance. But when you're wearing a mask, you have to be breathing through your nose. That does not mean it's okay to breathe through your mouth, because if you're breathing through your mouth, you're still going to be exposed to everything. Our nose is our first line of defense against viruses entering our airway. So it is essential to always be breathing through your nose. So let's go to some really practical tips. I I mentioned at the beginning that I've started now. Tell me if there's some physiology to this. So let's say I wake up at three o'clock in the morning because I went to bed at nine and and I still got to get a couple hours more sleep. And I wake up and I say, oh, my God, I'm breathing through my mouth again. So I close my mouth. I lay there really patiently and just start breathing through my nose. Nice and easy, as you described, so many different kinds of settings. And I'll always fall asleep now. And But you know what? My airway starts out like there's some resistance there. And within a minute, it's, it, it tends to open up. So if people are kind of inspired by this conversation, first of all, I hope everybody goes out and gets the book because the book is so darn cool. And But then what's going on there? And give us some more techniques that are practical like that, that we can just all be changed from this conversation once we hear it, James. So what you can do right now is just place your hand over your heart and you can inhale to a count of about three, whatever is comfortable, and exhale to about six or if you can make it to eight, that's even better. So one, two, three, we're inhaling and then exhale, two, three, four, and on and on and keep breathing that way. You're going to notice that your heart rate speeds up when you're inhaling And it slows down when you're exhaling. So what that is doing is it is allowing you to use your breath to take control of aspects of your nervous system, of your autonomic nervous system. Because every exhale is associated with a relaxation response, a parasympathetic response, Mm -hmm. which is why your heart rate is going down. So if ever you want to relax yourself, if ever you wake up in the middle of the night or you're stressed out, extend your exhales. It's no coincidence that the famous breathing technique by Dr. Andrew Weil, who I'm going to be lucky enough to to talk to on his podcast in the next couple of weeks, he has this technique where, and it's been viewed like, you know, 10 million times on YouTube, you inhale to four, you hold for seven, you exhale for eight. So if you see what's going on there, you're either holding your breath or you're exhaling for three quarters of the time during that breath. What's that going to do? It's going to allow you to use your breath to relax your body. So throughout the day, when I'm stressed, I've been really busy lately, I breathe into a count of about four and I exhale to a count of about six. And doing this will just keep you pivoting over to that parasympathetic relaxation response. Okay. And 
tell us about, you know, people will be thinking about this when they're having a workout. What's going on with our workouts and breathing through our nose versus our mouth? You are going to get more oxygen by breathing through your nose. You are going to be able to recover more quickly, and there's a good chance your performance is going to go up. And a lot of you are saying, BS, I can't breathe through my nose. Every time I try to, my nose gets clogged up and I can't do it. Again, look at the science. Look at the work by Dr. John Duyard, who's been studying this stuff for 40 years. Look at what Brian McKenzie is now doing with Adidas and ultra marathoners and you know NFL stars. So nasal breathing is far superior. The problem is it takes a while to acclimate to it. So if you've been mouth breathing for 30 years while you're working out, it's going to be a complete pain in the butt to switch to nasal breathing. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. (laughs) It means it's going to take a while, but if you really put in the time, the benefits are known and the science is really clear on that. One piece of advice that both Patrick McEwen and Anders Olsen gave to me was that you should never work out harder then you can breathe correctly. So if you notice your breathing is, (laughs) slow it down, build your base, and work up slowly from there. And again, the benefits of this are not going to be subtle. Okay. What are we going to see first as a benefit? (laughs) You're first going to not see a benefit. Many people uh, are not going to see a benefit. They're going to see their performance go down. They're going to get frustrated. They're going to be jogging so slowly or working out so slowly. They're going to say, this is stupid. They're going to give up. And this is what the majority of people do. But if you stick with it um, and your body acclimates, you are going to be engaging your diaphragm more. You are going to be getting more oxygen with each breath. You are going to be utilizing that oxygen more efficiently. Your VO2, they've shown that VO2 max will increase. Red blood cell count can increase. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So why, if you think about it, let's say you have a sports car. Would you always be revving that sports car up like in neutral at every stop sign? Would you constantly be pinning it the whole? Of course you wouldn't. You're going to ruin the motor if you do that. You want it to work as efficiently as, as it possibly can. Your body is the same thing. Why do you want to work out your heart unnecessarily by (gasps) breathing more than you need to? You need to breathe within your metabolic needs. And in athletics, efficiency, that's the name of the game. That's what makes winners and losers is how efficient you are, how fast you can go, how long you can last. So athletes are the biggest fans of this. And I can't tell you how many letters I've gotten, dozens and dozens of them, people saying, Oh my God, it sucked for the first couple weeks, but now I, you know, my, I've never been able to ride so quickly with such little effort. And I come back and I can, I I can ride again the next day because my heart rate variability has just been soaring the whole time. So this is, this is science. This isn't conjecture. And again, there's so many studies and so many people now proving this. Well, (laughs) you know, that's, that's like a, Five different ways to say one of the one of the best lines in the whole book I found that's so black and white is what our bodies really want, what they require is to function properly. <laughs> like we wouldn't have a nose if we weren't supposed to use it. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's like we're so used to having our bodies compensate because they're yes. so good at compensating. If you have a stuffed nose, we have this wonderful thing called a mouth that we can use when we're when we're punched in the face, when we can't breathe out of our nose. That doesn't mean that we should always be breathing through our mouth. Like compensation is not health. These are two different things. And what you want is health. You want efficiency. Yeah, that's just such a great way to think about it. So we're going to we're gonna need some perseverance. And I want you to finish, uh, uh, and then I'm going to let you tell us all about where we can find all this good information. But I want you to finish on something relevant to our times. People are expressing me, uh, I'm being interviewed a lot, of, uh, a lot in the news now about this book that I wrote called Happiness mm-hmm. is an Option. And it's really... It's really, it, it is so true. It's, it's how we, what we choose to give our attention to is going to leave us either, you know, a victim of the internet and our online lives or responsible for so much goodness in the world. So tell me if there are, I, I believe there are some real mental challenges that we give ourselves by not having enough oxygen. Is it related to our ability to cope and our ability to reason and all that? Low oxygen stats? Absolutely. So it's it's not so much a low oxygen thing because a healthy body is going to have the right amount of oxygen. It's a low CO2 thing. Right. So unless you have, unless you're at altitude, unless you have COVID, unless you have emphysema, if you're generally healthy, your O2 is going to be fine. <laughs> it's your CO2 and without that balance of CO2, O2 can't do what it's designed to do. So there's been numerous studies showing that the way in which you breathe affects the emotional center of your brain. It affects the logical centers, the the reasoning center. So how you breathe goes right down to affecting different cells in your brain and how they function. Because of course it does. (laughs) Because we're breathing 20,000 times a day. And if you're doing that improperly, nothing's going to work right. So again, it's so it's such a simple thing, which is why I think one of the reasons it's been so ignored. And yet it's something that's available to everyone. It's free. There are no side effects. The worst thing that can happen is you'll just feel a lot better. And that's not too bad nowadays. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we need all the, the assistance in that zone that we can. So the book is Breath. The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. James, where can people learn more? Where can they get the book? Tell us all the ways that people can connect with this great work. Um, I knew that these claims were going to sound so outrageous to so many people, which is why I put all of the scientific references on my website, which is Mr. James Nestor, mrjamesnestor.com. You can put a backslash breath there to go straight to that site. So there's about 500 references. There's x-rays, there's data, there's interviews that I've done with experts at Stanford and breathing methods from Johns Hopkins. So that's all there. There are links to the book where you can buy the book at, you know, wherever books are sold now, which I guess is just online. But but no, go to your local bookstore. I, I take that back. Uh, I'm also on Instagram. I've, I've heard of this thing called Instagram and social media somewhat recently because I'm old, but I'm just posting things related to the science of breathing 
and the things that will hopefully help people, little tips that you can use. And that handle is Mr. James Nestor. Okay, this is so great. All right, well, we'll wrap up today with the question I like to end with, with all my interviews for the Ever Widening Circles podcast. What to you, James, proves that it is still an amazing world? (laughs) Well, I'm unlike a lot of people where I think now is the most magical time in, in history to to live because we have different channels of information. We're able to meet and mingle with different cultures. We're able to learn things. But again, this goes back to something you said. It comes down to choice. What do you want to do with your time? And and so having more choices, I think, is a wonderful thing as long as you choose to do the right thing that is of benefit to you and hopefully others around you, then um, I would go in that direction. Okay. That's just super. Well, James, it's been a delight. We'll talk soon. We've got an article planned for Everwidening Circles, the website, all about this book. And I'll be in touch with you soon about that. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Have a great day, James. So thank you to James Nestor for that uh, great chat about something so fundamental to our everyday lives, every single one of us. It really has been life-changing for both my husband and I who read the book. So enjoy that. It's something like James mentioned that we all have access to that we can actually control in our lives (laughs) when things seem so out of control. So for more information, anything that he and I referenced, you can look down in the show notes. We have a great team that puts all the links down there. And as always, dive into the ever-widening circles universe by visiting everwideningcircles.com. A real quick way to get there is ewc.co. If you've got students in your life, turn them on to the education version of Everwidening Circles. It's at ewced.com. You can literally turn children loose there to explore so much wonder in the world. That website is all teed up. It's free. It's just meant to encourage children's sense of connection between wonder and learning. And then, as always, people ask very often how they can help Ever Widening Circles. Because most people have a look at the website, realize there's no commercial agenda, no politics. We're just doing something good for the universe. So people ask me all the time how they can help. And the best way you can help Ever Widening Circles is to subscribe and then download the app. The app is a wonderful way to send a signal to content creators in the world that you will support positive media. And at a dollar a month, it means the world to us to have people who will chip in to make sure this is an effort that can continue. We need positive media. We need the other part of the story about each other. So I hope all these connections to goodness and progress carry through your week. And you start finding all the joy and wonder we've been talking about here today and everywhere in the ever-widening circles orbit. <laughs>